1: Well, thank you so much, Glenda, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop update on glioblastoma, and we are very delighted to be able to offer this program, and this program is being offered in collaboration with about 24 other cancer organizations, and there are three uh, brain tumor organizations that I want to highlight as well, the Brain Tumor Foundation and Brain Cancer Initiative, Chris Elliott Fund, and National Brain Tumor Society. So you'll be getting information about all of these resources for you to have. They are on the brochures as well, the materials. But at the end of the program, we'll get an evaluation form. It will have all of the resources that are mentioned during the program as well. So you'll have that. Now, I've um, really had a response program, and we have over 461 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. Um, from all different parts of the United States, and we also have international participants from uh, many countries, from Canada, China, ed- Ecuador, India, Japan, Malta, Sweden, Turkey, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really, it's a credit to all of you that you're on this call. This is a global call, um, and uh, both. Um, uh, so we really are delighted to have all of you on the call today. And today's program is supported by ABVI, Electa, Inc., and a grant from Genentech, and we really want to thank them for their support of the program and also for their corporate collaboration in making this possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, really the best as far as I'm concerned, and our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Bruce. Uh, Dr. Bruce is Edgar M. Hospian, Professor of Neurological Surgery, Vice Chairman of Academic Affairs, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, Director Bartoli Brain Tumor Research Laboratory and Co-Director of Brain Tumor Center. And Dr. Bruce is going to be addressing an overview of glioblastoma, current standard of care, novel treatment approaches, the role of immunotherapy, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bruce.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, I'm delighted to be here on behalf of Cancer Care and I welcome uh, everyone who's listening today. Cancer Care is a wonderful organization and I've been associated with it for many years. This organization has been very helpful for many patients and their families. They provide a great service by educating and providing support for those of you who are suffering from brain tumors. Now, this is an exciting time to be in the brain tumor field as there are many new advances in the treatment and diagnosis in glioblastoma. In fact, there are more scientists working on brain tumors now than any other time in our history. Glioblastomas are what is known as primary brain tumors. That is, they begin in the brain and they grow from within the brain. This is distinct from metastatic brain tumors, which are tumors that have spread from elsewhere into the body and into the brain. Now, glioblastomas are malignant brain tumors. Um, They they can spread to other parts of the brain or spinal cord, but rarely do they spread to other parts of the body. They're invasive tumors, so most of, the, most of the treatment is designed to control the tumor at the location in the brain where it begins. And although there are researchers who are trying to determine what causes brain tumors, at this point no one truly knows. It is clear that nothing you did caused your brain tumor, and there was nothing you could have done to prevent it. Glioblastomas are diagnosed when patients develop any of a number of symptoms, including headaches, seizures, weakness, balance problems, or difficulty with speech. And these are usually diagnosed with an MRI scan. The current standard of care relies on surgery, followed by six weeks of radiation, and then chemotherapy with a drug called temodar. In the treatment of glioblastoma, the goal of surgery to try and remove as much tumor as possible. And depending on where the tumor is located, a surgeon may be able to remove most of it or only a small portion of it. In some cases, only a biopsy may be reasonable. Now, the problem with these tumors is that they invade into the normal brain, so it's not possible to completely remove them with surgery. There are a variety of techniques, though, and tools that make surgery safer than ever. And surgery accomplishes two goals. One is to remove some of the mass effect on the brain that is causing problems, and the other is to provide tissue to give to the pathologist so that he or she can make the diagnosis. Now, Many patients are on steroids after the surgery to try and reduce the amount of swelling. And these can have certain side effects, including increased appetite, weight gain, acne, mood changes, stomach irritation, difficulty sleeping, um, Most patients are on some form of anticonvulsants, which are medications to prevent seizures. Not everyone needs this medication, but those that do benefit from preventing the seizures. Some of the side effects of that can include allergies, dizziness, or fatigue. Once the surgery is complete and the patient has recovered, he or she will then undergo 30 treatments of radiation therapy. This is generally given Monday through Friday for six weeks until the 30 treatments are up. And it's generally pain, painless treatment. But some of the side effects can include hair loss, tiredness, and skin irritation. Chemotherapy is also given. And the standard chemotherapy is a drug called temozolamide, otherwise known as temodar, And this drug has been shown to be effective at slowing down tumor growth. It is sometimes given during the radiation, sometimes given after. In any event, it is effective in any manner that it's given. Surgery, radiation, and Temodar are the current standard of care. Now, when a tumor grows back after the standard treatment, then one of the many novel experimental treatments become an option. The novel therapy Approaches that people are most familiar with involve different types of chemotherapy. There are many new drugs being developed all the time that are designed to target the growth of the brain tumors. Some of the novel treatment approaches include ways to alter the chemotherapy so it gets better penetration into the brain. Also, many of these drugs are designed to have less side effects and to be more effective at killing tumor cells. With with the advances nowadays in molecular, biologic, and other scientific techniques, scientists have been able to determine very detailed molecular and genetic analysis of individual tumors. This has led to a lot of excitement into the area of so-called personalized therapy. What this means is that scientists can analyze a given tumor and determine what parts of the tumor are causing the growth that are different from other people's tumors. And with that in mind, it may be possible to develop special drugs that target these individual problems and are are best for a given person's tumor. This work is very preliminary and has not been developed to the point that it can be mass produced for every individual, but that is hopefully something on the horizon. Other types of drugs out there are designed to affect blood vessels in the brain or to block the invasion of the brain by the tumor. And I might mention another thing in conjunction with these different drugs, and that is we're working on new ways to deliver these drugs. And In fact, in our own institution, we're about to launch a, the first trial ever where uh, the drug is given directly into the tumor through an implantable pump in the patient's abdomen. So that instead of having the drug being taken by a pill or given intravenously, it's pumped directly into the tumor itself, where you avoid all of the side effects of the chemotherapy. Now, finally, there are some new developments in everything from gene therapy and the use of viruses to attack certain parts of the tumor. These treatments are part of a trend known as biological therapies. This is where specialized viruses or bacterias or the products of these can be used to kill cancer cells. And these sophisticated treatments have been worked out in research laboratories for many years and are just getting into the clinic now. And they are holding out a lot of hope because they represent whole new areas of treatment that that have not been looked at at all yet. One of the very promising areas for brain tumors is the field of immunotherapy. And these are treatments that use vaccines and other strategies to help the body's own immune system to eliminate the tumor. The immune system in human beings is remarkable. It's what allows you to get rid of viruses and bacteria that cause the flu and other types of infections. Basically the immune system destroys viruses and bacteria because they're seen as foreign invaders which are then destroyed by the immune cells in the body, just like the Pac-Man video games. Interestingly, the immune cells recognize tumor cells like glioblastoma in the same way, just the same way they recognize bacteria and viruses, they recognize recognize the glioblastoma as a foreign invader and the immune system responds by stimulating this, this immune response. Unfortunately, the tumor grows faster than the immune system can destroy them. So much of the research now is designing new vaccines or drugs that can boost the immune system response. Much of the immunotherapy work is still at a very early stage, but these results are very provocative and promising. There are also a number of very promising drugs involving immunotherapy and those drugs that boost the immune system. You may have heard of something called checkpoint inhibitors which are among the most promising areas of these types of immune drugs that are being tested. And many of these new drugs um, are given in combination with other types of immunotherapy, such as vaccine. So the combination of a vaccine and additional drugs can all stimulate the immune system. You may have also heard of, of a relatively new treatment that's just being tried, something called uh, uh, cart therapy or which the CART, CART, stands for Chimeric Antigen Receptor Therapy. And this is a way of taking T-cells, which are a specific type of immune cell, and modify them so that they bind directly to the tumor cells so it makes them more effective at, uh, at attacking those tumor cells. Well, I've, I want to end up by talking about a different topic and that is communicating with your healthcare team. First of all, it's important to seek reputable specialists. It's helpful to find people who are specialists specifically in brain tumors. It is easier than ever to find these people with the use of the internet and also by working with support groups and groups like Cancer Care, this can be easily accomplished. It's important to have some control over your lifestyle, given the inconveniences of having to see doctors and getting tests and treatments. Keeping a notebook or using your smartphone to jot down notes and reminders will help you to make sure that you're not overwhelmed by dealing with your condition. This way, when you see your doctor, you can make sure your questions are answered, because you have them right there in front of you, and you can make sure that your instructions are understood. It's important that you keep an honest dialogue with your family so that they understand what you're going through and it can help you make decisions. Also, I would be skeptical of anecdotes, no matter how well-meaning. There are no two patients who are exactly alike, and I would be careful about trying to apply something you have heard about another patient to your specific case. It may also be useful to have second opinions if time is available. Having other opinions can help refine and formulate your questions. It's important to work with your healthcare team and friends and family so that you can maintain the highest quality of life possible. This is very doable. Just because you have a brain tumor, no one is saying that you can't visit a mall, enjoy your birthday party, have a nice meal or see a good movie. It's important to continue to live your life to the highest degree possible despite any diagnosis or side effects that you may be suffering. This is the, by far the best way to cope with your tumor. I would also say it is important to consider clinical trials at academic centers, and there are many groups of outstanding researchers put together thoughtful proposals to come up with new ideas, and the research being done is more sophisticated than ever, and the optimism for finding better treatments and improving the quality of life has never been greater. So I'm going to stop here and turn the program over to Dr. Eric Wong.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Bruce. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful setting the stage for today's whole uh, workshop. So thank you very much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Eric Wong. Dr. Wong is Associate Professor, Harvard Medical School, Director of the Neuro-Oncology Unit, Co-Director, Brain Tumor Center, Department of Neurology, Beth Israel, Deaconess Medical Center. Um, and Dr. Wong is going to be addressing electric field treatments, the importance of clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, managing symptoms and treatment side effects, and the role of rehabilitation medicine. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Wong.
3: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner and Dr. Bruce. Um, thank you very much uh, for uh, allowing me to uh, give this uh, uh, talk here in cancer care so that um, uh, a number of patients uh, can uh, take advantage of our expertise. So I'm going to talk about a number of recent advances in the treatment of glioblastoma. Uh, first, uh, the first and foremost is the electric field treatment, which is also called the tumor-treating fields. And this type of therapy has been around uh, for more than a decade uh, Uh, even though uh, it is now uh, being known uh, better and better. Um, This was introduced about a decade ago in clinical trial uh, for patients with recurrent glioblastoma. Uh, My institution in Boston, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, was one of the participating sites, as well as Columbia Presbyterian. And since then, The tumor-treating field therapy have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 2011 for recurrent glioblastoma, as well as 2015 for newly diagnosed glioblastoma. And uh, and patients uh, uh, getting this type of treatment has a definite advantage when uh, tumor-treating fields was applied together with adjuvant temozolomide. Um, and that is the phase uh, that is after their initial radiation. Um, so in this type of therapy, what happens is that patients uh, wear two pairs of uh, arrays on their head. They, they have to shave their head, and uh, there's a pair that goes from front to back and a pair from right to left, and the arrays are connected to a generator and a battery pack. Uh, uh, they can be carried in a backpack, they weigh approximately 3 pounds now, uh, which is a lot lighter than the first generation. And this type of electric thi- field therapy works by uh, interfering when with uh, tumor cells when they are dividing. Um, because um, we do not know exactly when the tumor cells divide, and they may not divide at the same time. Uh, therefore, uh, patients have to wear uh, this device uh, uh, continuously uh, throughout the day. And the recommended treatment is uh, 75% of the time or 18 hours a day in order to maximize benefits. Another important thing uh, about tumor-treating theory is that um, it may also work by triggering the immune system to attack the tumor cells. Um, and, um, and therefore, it is best So if. Understand the various phases of clinical trial. Whenever there's a new drug, new type of therapy, new device that comes out, um, uh, we often ask the question of how safe is the drug, how safe is the device, and how safe is the therapy. And therefore, um, the uh, the agent would be placed in phase one clinical trial to test for safety. Once a safe dose is found, once a safe mechanism uh, of administration is found, then uh, the experimental uh, treatment would be placed in phase two clinical trial in which uh, we test in a small population of patients to get a rough idea of how well it works. If it still looks promising, then it goes to phase three clinical trial in which patients are objectively randomized to the experimental arm as well as the control arm. And the phase three clinical trial is really the definitive trial uh, to determine efficacy, meaning that uh, whether or not uh, it should be reviewed by the Food and Drug Administration for approval for general use. And this has to go through a committee uh, in in Washington D.C. and uh, and and, uh, and and this is a big deal. So um, so uh, so clinical trials is important, and I would certainly encourage uh, all patients to consider uh, participating in clinical trials uh, and have uh, their family members to help them. Now, um, at at the present time, there are a number of uh, Therapies that are in clinical trials, including uh, targeted agents, and as Dr. Bruce alluded to, there are vaccine uh, therapies that are available right now. CAR T cell has been talked about um, uh, in in some of the forums for glioblastoma patients, as well as combination therapies. Uh, and combination, I'm I'm referring to therapies that are known to work, and we want to make them work better by Adding on uh, uh, other uh, drugs or therapies uh, that may augment uh, uh, the known therapies. Another uh, important uh, aspect that I want to talk about in the glioblastoma patient population is how to manage uh, symptom and treatment side effects. And I want and I want and I would like to touch on three points. One is that's a methasone and uh, the second one is uh, methylphenidate or Ritalin. And the third one is uh, seizures and the management of seizures with anticonvulsants. So first, uh, desimethasone. We use desimethasone a lot in terms of con- controlling edema or swelling in the brain caused by the tumor. Um, however, uh, desimethasone has a lot of side effects, including uh, it can trigger diabetes in certain patients, it can uh, suppress the patient's immune system. So in order to um, uh, minimize these side effects, uh, it is recommended to uh, minimize the use of desimethasone if possible. One of the uh, important uh, issues in the glioblastoma management is that uh, it has to do with the extent of surgical resection. So uh therefore it is very important to find a neurosurgeon who have the expertise in terms of doing a very safe and very extensive surgery in order to get the most of the tumor out and therefore with that uh the patient would need uh uh no tesimethasone or very low doses of dexamethasone, Um and uh There are certain patients who may develop uh, attention deficits or neurocognitive deficits, and sometimes this is a result of the tumor, sometimes it is a result of the radiation. Uh, However, um, methylphenidate or Ritalin is one of the drugs uh, that can potentially help to make patients function better. So, um, and And when patients develop uh, these problems, uh, neurocognitive problems, and mostly uh, it is uh, because of an attentional deficit uh, component, uh, the methylphenidate can speed up the processing speed so that patients can uh, sustain attention, patients can uh, form short-term memory better, uh, and so that they can function better. The last point that I would like to touch on uh, is seizure management there are a lot of anticonvulsants out there uh and anticonvulsants by its very nature can suppress nerve function in the brain so um so um, there are certain anticonvulsants that have less neurocognitive side effects whereas others that have more neurocognitive side effects consult your neurologist neurooncologist uh who can pick the right anticonvulsant for you um uh, so that uh, it can prevent seizures and while keeping you alert uh, and able to function on a daily basis or even uh, uh, participating in work. There's one very important aspect about anticonvulsant use, and that is um, uh, if a patient uh, have a seizure uh, uh, at various days, they may refrain from driving for a period of time. So this discussion about uh, continuing anticonvulsant uh, uh, while the patient uh, uh, do not have seizures, uh, it may require a discussion with the treating neurologist or neuro uh whether or not they want to uh, uh, take a risk of uh, sustaining a seizure uh, and then prevent them from driving. The last point that I would like to make uh, has to do with uh, the role of rehabilitation medicine. And, and sometimes uh, patients with glioblastoma, they may have motor deficits, uh, speech problems, balance problems, or neurocognitive problems. And um, because the brain is a plastic organ, plastic I mean by uh, with training, the brain can adapt and find new pathways in order to sustain the function. And um, and to do so, it requires uh, physical therapy requires occupational therapy and requires speech therapy as well as neurocognitive rehabilitation. All these um, rehabilitation programs are available to you at large medical centers and you should talk to your uh, your, your brain tumor treatment team so so uh, so uh, so I would like to. Hand, this, hand the podium back to Dr. Meissner, and I would be happy to answer any questions that you may have.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was very comprehensive and excellent and really um, very important information for everyone to have, and I know there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Andrew Chesler. Mr. Chesler is a program coordinator at Cancer Care. He is an oncology social worker. And Mr. Chessler is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Mr. Chessler.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. Um, I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of uh, creating a support network when a person is diagnosed with glioblastoma and how cancer care can be a part of that network, there are several ways we can help. Uh, cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Uh, cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the health care system, Uh, practical help and uh, limited financial assistance, in some cases for transportation and copay. Um, All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. I do want to mention that we do, as I said, have a copay division which does currently have funding um, for glioblastoma, and I'll give you the number to call for that in a moment. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and and his or her family and friends, uh, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and the financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Uh, Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of a healing process. Asking for help, whether that's by joining a support group or contacting a social worker for counseling should be looked at, uh, we believe, as a sign of strength. And Cancer Care offers face-to-face groups in our local offices, that's in the New York City area, but also uh, telephone and online groups nationally. Uh, These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by glioblastoma, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to help facilitate the group. We currently have a uh, telephone group that's available nationwide uh, to anyone uh, diagnosed with a uh, with a brain tumor of any kind, and we have uh, online groups for caregivers, and those can be joined by going to our website, which is cancercare.org. Sharing information and understanding with others in a similar situation can be a very powerful experience. Uh, group members offer encouragement, a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and some guidance, and these connections can really help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience and also their caregivers. So as we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest uh, and make sense of. Uh, Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and for your family. Uh, Cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask and to get the answers and the information that you need. So please remember that you're not alone. The care services are there to help you. So uh, please contact us uh, at 1-800-813-4673, that's 1-800-813-HOPE, or log into our website at uh, www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology uh, social work support. Our copay division number is 866 552 6729. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. And I'll give you back to Carol.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Mr. Chessel. That was really excellent, um, really outstanding. And we will be providing all of you with these phone numbers, both copay financial assistance as well as well our general program. So you'll be getting all that information. So if you're writing it down, you'll also be getting it um, from us after the program and evaluation. Well, now we do have time for questions. I want to thank our speakers. We have lots of time for questions, and so I'm going to um, ask Glenda to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Some of you are doing this already because you know how to do that, but some of you do not know. Maybe your first time on the program, so Glenda is going to walk you through how to, how, to, how to ask a question, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your questions, um, then I will give you at the very end of the call the different ways to get your questions answered. So, um, Gwenda?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one.
1: Think we have a question from one of our online participants, and I'm going to direct this question first to Dr. Uh, Bruce. Um, are glioblastomas hereditary?
2: Well, glioblastomas are usually not hereditary. There's a very, very small subset of them that can be, but by, by far the vast majority of them are not inherited. So if you have a glioblastoma, you need not worry about other family members having them as well
1: okay. Thank you. Um and Dr. Warren, did you want to add anything to that or
2: Yeah, uh
3: I also do not think that uh glioblastoma is uh hereditary. Um uh, however I have seen uh, uh uh several members of the same family having glioblastoma but that is a very, very, very rare situation.
1: Well, thank you. Okay. Um, so, um, and we have another question. Uh, this would be for Dr. Wong from one of our online participants. Um, what can I do um, uh, to help with my insomnia as a result of Decadron?
3: Yeah, uh, I think this is a very, very good question because uh, this issue actually comes up very, very often among our patients. Um, I think first and foremost, uh would be to lower the dose of the desimethasone. Um, uh, uh, And as you know, when patients take desimethasone, they are usually on 16 milligrams a day. And just to put this into perspective, uh, our body makes an endogenous uh, steroid. Um, That is the equivalent of one milligram of desimethasone a day. So in other words, we are taking 16 times as much uh, desimethasone as our body needs, and that's going to interfere with sleep. Uh, and it makes patients euphoric, uh, but um, but the flip side is that uh, they cannot sleep and eventually they, they go into a bad cycle. So one way of managing this would be to decrease the total dose of the desimethasone on a per-day basis. Another way of managing uh, this is that if we cannot lower the the total daily dose uh, to to one milligram or less or even to four milligrams a day, one way that we can do it would be to space out the desimethasone doses and 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 then take the last dose before five p m and try not to take a dose of uh, desimethasone before bedtime because uh the scheduling of desimethasone uh, doesn't uh, uh, really matter uh, as long as the total dose is the same day by day. So that's how we can potentially manage uh, the uh, desimethasone-induced insomnia. In addition, there are certain medications that uh, we can try, such as benzodiazepines, uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, or citalopram uh one can use uh for sleep or uh in milder cases one can try tryptophan. Uh that can that can potentially help patients. Excellent.
1: Thank you. And um Dr. Bruce, do you want to add anything to that or
2: No, I think that's that's excellent advice.
1: Okay, excellent, okay. All right, excellent. Um and um we have another question in front of our online participants. Um and uh, so, um, so here is a question. It's much like the question that actually um, you just answered, Doctor. I wanted to see if it's
3: okay. I can give it a try.
1: So here's um, the question. Is, so it's a, it's, um, it says, do you have any strategies for managing the effects of dexamethasone? My experience as a patient navigator is that this medication is critical, but ne- negatively affects quality of life. Aside from medical ways to adapt, how how to help? How do we help patients and families adjust to the side effects mentally? I see families and pa- patients really struggling with effect- accepting lower functional status and quality of life.
3: So I, could
1: you comment on that um, a bit? Does that
3: Yes, yes. Uh, I think, uh, uh, I, think uh, I have a sense of uh, what, what the um, uh, uh, person is alluding to. Um, so first of all, desimethasone has a number of side effects. So insomnia that I touch on uh, is just one aspect of it. But uh, desimethasone can also cause the se- a secondary diabetes, Desimethasone can also cause a, what we call a cushion noise uh, syndrome in, in which um, uh, the patients gain weight, uh, the patient's uh, uh, face swell up, uh, the patients uh, 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 have uh, stretch marks in their stomach, uh, and their uh, belly uh, kind of uh, becomes protuberant. Um, uh, desimethasone can also suppress the immune system uh, so it has a number of side effects, and um, and and uh, in addition to insomnia, this weight gain can also cause uh, secondary sleep apnea, and that is going to major interfere with their uh, in getting a restful sleep. So um, uh, the way around it is to decrease the total dose of Uh That's one way. Um, however there are other medications that can um that can uh help to reduce the, the the total desimethasone dose on a daily basis and one of the drugs that we use a lot is um uh, bevacizumab or avastin now we have to be careful here because uh, avastin um uh it uh, the reason why we are using avastin is to decrease the um brain edema um and most of the time when we use dexamethasone and that is for decreasing the brain edema so uh we can try to start patients on uh, bevacizumab or avastin while decreasing the amount of uh dexamethasone that is being used other than these other than avastin um uh, another drug that i may consider using would be celebrex um uh, there is some anecdotal reports of uh, a specific antihypertensive, Losartan, that also has anti-edema effects in the brain. But um, but uh, Celebrex and Losartan, they have uh, weak anti-edema effects in the brain. Um, but these are the drugs that we can consider to replace uh, desomethazone.
1: Excellent. Thank you and um Dr. Bruce, do you want
2: to add anything or well, yeah, I would say um it's it's important to let your doctor know if you're having a lot of symptoms from the steroids i I think all of the symptoms are expected, but you may want to ask your doctor if if you're on the right dose is it in other words, is it possible to reduce the dose a lot of times are are our uh, method of giving dexamethasone is just following a formula that everybody gets the same amount for this uh for the same period of time and you know some people re- actually require less of it and i think it's worth uh bringing the subject up with your with your doctor to see if he f- if he or she may feel comfortable in reducing the amount that you're you're taking sometimes these drugs are set on autopilot and and people neglect to reduce them or stop them when, when they're no longer needed.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Very helpful. And um, So now I have a question for um, Dr. Bruce from one of our online participants. Um, I use Optune and currently on cycle four of six of temador. I'm also taking Optivo infusion every two weeks and will be on infusion number seven today. Do you recommend that I stay on Temidor past the six cycles with my use of optune so again, Dr. Bruce would address this in a general way, and then of course, we encourage you to speak to your healthcare team about the specifics in terms of your situation. but is it possible, Dr. Bruce, to address this in a general way just to provide some general information about this protocol?
2: Well, I think the um, the general answer is that um, you're You're on a number of of different uh, treatments, and it sounds like who's uh, who's ever managing these for you is uh, doing a very good job of being aggressive and and trying to make every option available. And what I would say it's it's uh, difficult for me uh, w- without knowing the specific patient and all of their um, medical history and and, and side effects you know, what to advise you about something as specific as that. What I would say is that uh, uh, it's it sounds like a very reasonable um, type of treatment that you're on, and I would just refer to your own doctors about a specific question about whether whether you should continue one drug or another. Um, but most of these, many of these drugs do not really interact with the other drugs, so it's, it's reasonable to continue them. Um, but it can get, it can get very complicated, and, and so I think those are best answered by your own doctor.
1: Well, that's such an excellent point. I think sometimes, um, um, for many of our participants on the call on the call today, and on many of our calls, it's good to practice asking your questions here, and then and then getting the the, um, the sense that this is a good question, and go ahead and ask your healthcare team as well. So thank you, Doctor Bruce, for really. Um, you know, really making that point. And, and Dr. Wong, do you want anything to that? Because I think sometimes in, in these general presentations, people you will ask questions and um and you'll get information that hopefully will then fortify you to then ask your own healthcare team as well. So, do you want to add anything, Dr. Wong or?
3: Uh Kellen, uh, uh, uh can you repeat the question?
1: So I think the um the question really was um the person who was asking about the particular type of uh, treatment protocol. Um and um, so I think it was very specific to their situation. And so, and so often people will ask a very specific question on our programs about their treatment and ask what, what they should do. And it's a good practice run actually for asking their own physician. And so I guess I just um, wanted to um, invite your comment about just really working so closely with your health care team about these decisions because they actually know so much about you uh, more than anybody else.
3: Yes, uh, yes. Uh, because nowadays uh, we try to uh, we try very hard to personalize uh, treatment for uh, individual patients. Yes, we have uh, common things that we do, but each patient is different. So uh, yes, uh, uh, the individual patients should check with their um, uh, uh, healthcare team uh, in order to find the best way of managing them. However, I would like to make this point, and that is. Uh, It goes back to clinical trials issue. Um, What I usually tell patients is that um, uh, if they qualify for a clinical trial, uh, uh, the patients uh, should uh, seriously consider in participating it. Uh, Sometimes uh, it may not be possible because uh, uh, it requires traveling, it requires multiple uh, clinic visits or a long day, uh, but If something that's doable and if you have the family resources or friends uh, who can help you, uh, I would certainly encourage uh, uh, patients to participate in clinical trial. because um, in order to get the clinical trial treatment, uh, one has to have certain characteristics in order to get that. Uh, Once uh, the patient is outside of that window, they may not be able to participate in it. And with conventional treatment, uh, he or she can uh, get it anytime, uh, even when after failing the clinical trial uh, drug treatment. So I would certainly encourage all patients to seriously consider partic- part, uh, participating in clinical trials.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And um, so, a question from Mr. Chessler um, So, how can I get connected with other brain tumor survivors and their family members? Um so um from one of our online participants, if you could address that.
4: Um Sure. Um uh well one thing to do of course is to is to call us and we can um uh give you a social worker to to work with to really you know figure that out with you see what's in your area. Um there are some other organizations and again calling us would be the place to start that we're cancer care. Um There are also um, other organizations that provide uh, peer-matching support, and I can mention a couple of those to you. One of them is called uh, Immerman Angels. Um, That would be an organization to look at, and the Cancer Hope Network. These are organizations that will put you, uh, either if you're the person diagnosed or a caregiver or family member, in touch with others who are either receiving similar treatment, have similar diagnosis, or just had a similar situation. So I would recommend those organizations. Uh, again, there's, it's called Immerman Angels and the Cancer Hope Network. And I would absolutely encourage you to call us, uh, and we can give you further resources along those along those lines.
1: Well, thank you. We will supply, supply that information to all of you so you have the access to those um, organizations as well um, after this call. And also, as a follow-up question, also, if you, um, Mr. Chester, um, so do you have any suggestions from one of our online participants um on how um patients and families can adjust to d- different um f- different uh, um uh changes in and f- in f- in functioning um uh in terms of how families can adjust to these to just coping with um glioblastoma?
4: Mm-hmm. well uh, you know again reaching out to us or you know your uh hospital social worker. Is one way to begin. I mean, having having conversations, keeping lines of communication open, um, is crucial, of course. Um, Adjusting expectations is you know is part of this. Um, As uh, Dr. Bruce mentioned uh, at the beginning of this call, um, you know, to live life as normally as possible is, I think, you know, should always be a goal. And to understand that while there may be some limitations. you know, to have communication and be around people who you know, who make you feel comfortable and make you feel good. I mean, those are crucial things. And I, again, I would urge anyone to be connected to someone, a professional with whom you can talk about these things, um, hospital social worker, patient navigator, uh, someone in your religious organization, if you're if you're uh, if you're connected to a, a church. Or, um, and again, of course. All that, and we'll give you a social worker to help you with that.
1: Thank you. And we have a question, I think, from one of our telephone participants. Um, so, Glenda?
0: Yes. And our next question comes from the line of Deborah M. Your line is now open. Oh, yes. Can you hear
1: me? Yes, Deborah, absolutely. Thank oh. you for your patience, yes.
0: You. What do the doctors think of the
1: ketogenic diet as a potential uh, additional therapeutic treatment for GBM? Could you repeat your question just one more time, please? Deborah? Sure. What do the doctors think of the ketogenic diet as an additional therapeutic treatment for glioblastoma? Okay. Um, Dr. Bruce, do you want to start with that one?
2: Yeah. The, the ketogenic diet is one that has uh, been around. It's it's designed to change your body's metabolism. In a way that, that uses oxygen and oxygen and nutrients differently, and there's been some theoretical, um, uh, some some thought that this could help slow down uh, tumor growth, and um, I would say that that many of these these are these are sort of considered alternative uh, medicines, and um, a lot of them are, are really unproven as to whether they help or lo- help or not. Um, and so, what I would say about treatments like that is that if if they're not causing you any harm i I don't have a problem with patients that want to you know try these different things. However, if they're interfering with your regular treatment or have bad side effects, then I would uh, uh shy away from them and i I think again, the fact that they're unproven um, doesn't mean that they don't work or will never work, it's just that uh, it might be better off having your energies in in other directions. So, um, sort of to summarize that, I'm I'm not against alternative medicine treatments uh, as long as they don't interfere and are are not harmful, uh, but it's something you really should discuss with your doctor so that you make sure it's not interfering with the other treatments you may be getting.
1: That's awesome. an excellent point. Thank you. And, and Dr. Wong, do you want to comment as well?
3: Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, I would like to make a couple of points, and I agree with Dr. Bruce that uh, ketogenic diet should not replace your conventional treatment or um, any uh, treatment that your uh, brain tumor team would recommend to you. Uh, I would view ketogenic diet as an adjuvant, uh, if you can handle it. And this is what I mean. Um, um, uh, ketogenic diet, uh, it comes in the form of 1 to 3 carbohydrate to fat for, uh, versus 1 to 4 carbohydrate to fat. Um, uh, and uh, as the carbohydrate contents becomes less and less, uh, it becomes uh, harder and harder to, um, to take that kind of diet primarily because we all grow up with a large amount of sugar and carbohydrate uh, in our environment. Um, Now, the theory behind ketogenic diet is that um, um, tumor cells only run on one type of fuel, and that is sugar. Uh, So if you cut back on the sugar, uh, there's not enough fuel for the tumor to grow. However, our body can use other kinds of fuels, like ketones. Uh, our brain can use ketones, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, ketogenic diet has been used in children with uh, poorly controlled epilepsy. Um, so uh, it uh, it may work in certain patients. Certain patients uh, may be able to tolerate that. However, if if the ketogenic diet really really decreases the uh, quality of life in in the particular patient i would uh, certainly advise against it uh and it certainly should not be placed uh, uh standard
1: treatment excellent thank you It's really wonderful questions uh, great great participants i must say and we have another question and this is for dr bruce from one of our online participants are there emerging biomarkers in glioblastoma, and where can i find more information
2: uh yes there that the the whole idea of emerging biomarkers is a is a huge area of research right now and what this means the, the idea of biomarkers is that uh, as your tumor grows and progresses it it changes some of the receptors on its surface it changes some of the proteins that it secretes and many of these are not only measurable in the tumor itself but sometimes measurable in in the blood even and these biomarkers um and they're they're really a product of all of the molecular biologic changes in the tumor and because it's easier than ever to do genomic sequencing of a patient's tumor we're getting more and more information about which markers correlate with which tumors and which prognostic factors. So um, the as as these, all of this information accumulates, you can see that statistically you can start to see patterns where certain biomarkers are not only uh, a prognostic measure but also can begin to be used to determine which treatments are best for a given person uh, based on their biomarkers, and right now, the information uh, on this is well. There's there's uh, uh, lots of information online uh, about this, but nearly every major medical center that deals with brain tumors is looking at biomarkers and doing genomic sequencing of patients' tumors to try and analyze that. So, I think that uh, it's a it's a very exciting area for the future, and I think that you'll you'll see that. Um, whereas in the future, or whereas in the past, we've we've taken uh, pathologists who look at your tumor and look at the histology and make a diagnosis, you'll see that the biomarkers are going to be used more and more to really enhance that diagnosis and improve not only the, um, the ability to predict uh, how you're going to respond to a treatment, but just to predict how you're going to do overall.
1: And and Dr. Wong, did
2: you want
3: to add anything to that? Um, uh there is uh no uh biomarker per se uh like a PSA for prostate cancer or um uh, or CEA for certain uh gastrointestinal malignancies uh that we can easily check uh in the outpatient setting. Um however there are certain biomarkers uh, that can be done on the tumor uh, uh, that can potentially be linked to a uh, targeted drug. So this is what I mean. Um, there are certain mutations uh, within tumors uh, that can uh, potentially be treated with a specific drug. Now, those drugs are in use in other disease uh, 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 domains. So, for example, in lung cancer, there are certain targeted agents against uh, epidermal growth factor mutants or ALK or ROS1-rearranged uh, uh, tumors. Uh, those, if the patient's uh, glioblastoma um, has that type of mutations, those drugs can potentially uh, be useful uh, there are certain uh, companies uh, that would do uh, uh, sequencing of the patient's tumor in order to identify those mutations. So in the Boston area, uh, uh, there's a uh, company called Foundation Medicine that can uh, sequence the tumor. Various um, academic medical centers have their in-house uh, sequencing um, uh, program. I'm uh, certainly uh certainly at Columbia, uh and also at my institution, uh, that can potentially identify these uh, these uh uh specific biomarkers that can be linked to a specific drug. So that may be useful for patients.
4: Awesome, thank you.
3: <laughs>
1: and we have um this will be our last question here. Um um, this is um, so last, light like, breaking question. Are there any sti- and this I'm going to direct to Dr. Bruce. Are there any statistics on how many astrocytomas evolve into glioblastomas? To address
2: that. Um, well, that's that's a very provocative question. I think you know, as you know, there are four grades of astrocytoma. There's grade one, which is called pilocytic astrocytoma, and those are mostly found in children and many times a grade one astrocytoma is a very benign tumor, and and many times those can be cured. Grade two or or low-grade gliomas are uh, generally slow-growing tumors, uh, but they ultimately grow into grade three or grade four tumors over time. Grade three uh, gliomas are are the so-called malignant glioma, malignant astrocytoma, and grade four, glioblastoma. And what I would say about grade two or low-grade gliomas is that they can be very variable in how they behave. Some of them ultimately grow quickly. Some of them grow very slowly. But I would say over time, they are all destined to become higher-grade tumors. Uh, I guess nothing is ever 100 percent, but I would say, you know, at a at a greater than 90 plus percent of the time, these tumors will will turn into higher-grade tumors. They may do it at different rates, and it may take many years for that to happen in some cases but ultimately that's the uh that's the natural progression of uh, of these low grade tumors
1: Excellent thank you um, Well, this has been an extraordinary call i want to I actually want to thank our speakers. you've been just phenomenal. I have to say you you can 't hear us applauding, but we are all applauding you. I also want to thank all of our participants because You've all asked really, really such really great questions. Uh, it's a very uh, in- informed group. Uh, very good questions have been asked. And um, I know there are more questions, so I want to move on to that issue that I said, well, if you didn't get your question answered, I'll give you some suggestions of how to get them answered. So, one thing that did come up during the call is, of course, we know that many of you like to kind of do some research on um, yourselves on information, we do recommend that you do go to actually um, very credible sites for that. So one that we often recommend is the National Cancer Institute. Um, their number is 1-800-422-6237. We also have three brain tumor organizations that we actually Um, you'll get that information at the end of the call and and got it actually before the call as well. But they also have really a whole repertoire of of information specialists that can help with questions as well. Also, the National Cancer Institute does have a live chat feature at www.cancer.gov. So both people in the US and internationally, you can go to that site and it's kind of their homepage and it has a live chat and you can post your question and the information specialist at the National Cancer Institute will then um, find information to help you. But the other, of course, that has come up a couple of times during the call today is your own healthcare team. We certainly want you to um, always, you know, bring your questions to your healthcare team. Um, they know the most about you, they're treating you and they can be very helpful with questions. And I hope you all at the end of today's call feel a great deal of permission from our speakers to be sure to ask your own healthcare team your questions because let's say that so they know you, they care about you, and they really want to know what's you know what is best for you. So that's really very important. Um, and I also want to say that um at today's call we hope you've gotten some information from this call that will be useful to you. We hope you've also gotten some support. Um, We are going to send you all an evaluation form. We would love to get your feedback as to your thoughts about the call, also topics you would like us to offer going forward. And um, most importantly, as we are about to conclude the program today, we don't want anyone on this call to feel that you're alone. We want you to feel that you're now part of the cancer care community and that to some extent we're here to help you, and we're here to provide support and help to you um, in your coping with glioblastoma, cancer in general, um, and for both people living with glioblastoma themselves and their family members. I also want to point out a program that you'll be hearing about um, from us but it's a program that we're doing on vision changes resulting from cancer treatment and um, that program is happening on uh, Monday, February 26th it's actually something that people often don't think about, it's for people with all different types of cancers and I would welcome all of you to listen to that program, it addresses many of the kinds of I issues that people often uh, experience when they're undergoing treatment for cancer in general. So it's not specific to glioblastoma, but it might be useful to people on the call and as, as well as their caregivers as well just to listen in. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.